Something I forgot to mention is our RUF, many of our RUF people are back. Raise your hand if you went to Cuba. We can tell you now, it's not a secret anymore. It's like a secret clandestine trip. But now we can say welcome back. Also, um, you know, if you've been overseas, um, even for a short time, coming back can be challenging, especially if it was a third world country. So ask them questions, find out about their experience. But we are going to try, I think we're going to try in a week, so we'll be emailing you to have a gathering where uh, those of us that would come and listen to their stories would hear you guys. So be ready. I guess you've been sharing your testimony for a week now, so now you'll collectively share your time. So we would love to hear that. So um, thank you for your service there, and we're glad to have you back. Shane is in Edmond preaching this morning, um, so that's why he's not there, but they're kicking up school again, so pray for their spring semester as they pick up as well. We are in John chapter 6. We're coming back to the book of John. Chris Moody will be preaching next week from uh, Psalm 103. So we're kind of jumping around. But John 6, just to remind you of where we've been, um, Jesus fed the 5,000. I told you a few weeks ago that was, uh, that, that's the one miracle that is in all four Gospels, is Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it's interesting, I use a lot of superlatives. I think of that as being maybe one of the most famous miracles. Right? Everyone has heard of that. This one's a rival. Like right after that miracle, Jesus does another miracle. He walks on the water, and in all the times that that shows up in the, the three times that the gospel writers bring that up, it's after the 5,000 feeding. So it's closely connected to what we've just seen. And in, the, in John, he shows us how it's really connected to Jesus sharing uh, the, the first I am statement, which is coming in a few weeks, but it's in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. So as we look at this text, we need to think of its context as well. And what we're going to do this morning is read a short story that happened in real time, in real space. It's hard to imagine, but it's a miracle. It's a sign, and we're going to dig into it and see what we can learn from it. So I do want to say we're starting at verse 15. Most people would start at 16 for this sermon, but I want you to see the connectedness to the feeding of the 5,000 and why Jesus sent the disciples on a boat before him. So starting at verse 15 of chapter 6. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, he's referring now to the crowds whom he's just fed that day, uh, and they're going to take him by force to become king, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you come to us, that Jesus, you came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again. And you've sent your spirit to teach us your word, to give us um, the words of life that we have with you. And I pray this morning as we look at this short passage that its power would be felt because of your spirit, that we would learn of you. 
for your glory. Amen. Yeah, this, this is an interesting, like, it's hard to teach a miracle because partly you just want to say, did you see, like, did you read what we just read? Um, but I want to also make sure we see it in the context. I had a professor who used to say context is text. So what is going on in chapter 6 and what is this miracle revealing? And I want to show us, uh, we've talked about this before, when you come to narrative style writing, it's typical to say, well, who, which character am I? And in this story, you really have two choices. You're either Jesus, which none of us are, remember? We're never going to be that character in the story. So we're the disciples on the boat, and that's good. The disciples on the boat had plenty to deal with. But there's another character I just want to remind us of, and that's the people who ate of the bread and the fish. They uh, had just had their fill. They are there. They are religious in a sense, right? They like Jesus. They want him to be king. Um, And they're in the text as well because they want to make Jesus the king. And so as we just process this sermon, this discussion, I'm asking everyone in this room is one of those two people. We're all either, and of course at times we're both, we're either those that are just kind of lounging in the grass, eating the bread, satisfied. We know that Jesus is somewhere, maybe up on the mountain. We're not sure where he is right now. Oh, his disciples have left on a boat. That's fine, because we're with Jesus. He's somewhere. Or were the disciples who were like on a mission for Jesus. Like they have gotten instruction from him. They are close to him. They, they seem to be the most aware of who he is. And that's, I want to sort of distinguish those two things out this morning. And we're going to see that Jesus has called all of us to be his disciples. Like what does that look like? And there's four things we're going to see. Number one, a direction. A disciple versus just what I'd call someone who just says, I believe in Jesus. A disciple has direction. A disciple recognizes the turbulence. Pardon me if the words, I'll unpack them as we go. Uh, the disciple sees Jesus shows up in the turbulence. And finally, the disciple welcomes Jesus into the boat. It's pretty simple, right? That's the, that's the story. That's what happens. So we're going to walk through these four steps and kind of see if we're tracking with those four steps in our own Christian walk. So let's start with the direction. Um, again, the backdrop, as I've mentioned, Jesus perceives that the crowd want to make him the king by force. I mean, that's, it sounds like a kind of a compliment, like, wow. Like they're going to usher him off and, 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 and honor him, but it's not an honorable thing. And we aren't told whether he perceives it through the supernatural. One of the challenges of this passage is where, and scholars are always art, like, trying to figure out, is he being human versus deity? Is he perceiving this through his, his being God? Or is it because it's just obvious? He, we don't know. But there's a sense in which he recognizes, as we talked about a few weeks ago, this crowd whom he's fed want him to be king. And so he's got to figure out, like, actually a way out of this situation. Like, if he just waits around and his disciples hang around, problems could ensue. So the strategy is tell the disciples to go on. Get in the boat and head over to the other side of the sea. Jesus will stay back. And that worked, right? The, the crowd, seeing Jesus staying there, did not be, were not upset. And, and the disciples had their mission and they're gone. Uh, you see that more in Matthew and Mark where, where there's that conversation about where they're going. And I want, as I process this passage, we, we, 
This is a, a living parable, this passage. Like Jesus is doing something in this miracle more than just walking on, I'm not trying to minimize it. He's communicating to you and I. Like he recognizes this miracle is going to transform the lives of those men on the boat, but it can transform our lives because of where it fits and the fact that he's talking about the bread of life and he's showing them in an intimate way who he is by giving them the direction to go and to follow him. Augustine uh, saw this passage and he says this about it. He says, sometimes the people of God are in trouble and cannot see their way out. In the dark, concerning the cause of their troubles, concerning the design and the tendency of the darkness and the troubles, or what the issues will be. So, so he's saying the church and the people of God are alike these disciples. And so Augustine himself, Matthew Henry, other commentators are saying we see in this passage an overlap to what's going on in our Christian lives. And that is we are called by Jesus to enter a course of action. And I love the way John writes about it. I'll go ahead and give away the ending since we've read the passage that they were glad to take him into the boat and they were immediately at the land to which they were going. Kind of this, he doesn't restate Capernaum. And when you read the other accounts, it's tricky to know exactly where they ended up because that's not John's point. John's point is the disciple has a mission to end up in heaven, right? That's our, that's our mission. And, and we've talked about before, oftentimes I think the Christian church, especially in America, We've separated out heaven from our Christian life. It's sort of this thing you get someday, one day, but right now I'm trying to live this life presently how I'm living it. And I think to be a disciple, we have to see that connect. Um, I was meditating on, the, on just the Beatitudes and, and the Sermon on the Mount as I read this, and I just want you to hear how Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew 5 and the words he says after every, after every blessed statement. I'm just going to read the blessing. That is the gift. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next blessing is comfort. The next blessing is inheriting the earth. The next blessing is being satisfied, receiving mercy, seeing God, being called sons of God, and finally and repeated the kingdom of heaven having the possession of that. So for, for Jesus, at the beginning of his sermon, he's saying, this is your goal, to reach the other side of the sea heaven, right? And then, of course, we pray every week the Lord's Prayer, also in Sermon on the Mount. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are holy. And then what's the next prayer? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. Our job as disciples is to long for heaven to come close. And so I think the difference between the men on the boat and the people on the shore is the men on the boat are in pursuit of Jesus and his will and that far side and the haven on the other side. So my question to you is this, what do you wanna be when you grow up? Have you heard that before? We ask that to all children. Many of us at midlife start to wonder, maybe I should go back to school. Mark Tower is getting a PhD. So you know we're all still figuring things out. Congratulations almost. Who do you wanna be when you grow up? Spiritually. Like, do you think about your spiritual lives. And, and I'm not trying to pick on different ages here, but so nobody be offended, but young people, when you see older people, do you pity or do you think, I can't wait? Give me their wisdom. Like, I long 
for humility. I long for peace. Like, what is it you long for? How do you dream of heaven breaking in? Here's the assignment for point one. The direction of the disciple. Write down sometime all the things you do in life. I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm a, ch- I'm a student. I'm a son or a daughter. I'm an employee. I work on this. What are your roles? And have you daydreamed about how heaven would break in? What does it look like for holiness and righteousness in that role? Have you done that? Have you thought of that? I think the disciple is someone who says, Jesus, I long for you to break in to my everyday existence. We're not all being called to write books, start blogs, start podcasts, be famous. Some of us will, some of us are. But most of us are called in the acre we've been given to see righteousness poured forth. That's the direction of the disciple. But when you understand that, point number two is you'll see the turbulence. Um, this wind that, that shows up in this storm. Just to come back to our passage, John really gives two descriptions. It was dark, right? And then it says in verse 18, the sea became rough because of a strong wind. I want to remind us, this is not the story of the storm where Jesus is on the boat asleep and the, and the disciples are in the boat and it's going to capsize and there's an actual storm. This is more likely a strong wind, which was something that still occurs in that region. The Sea of Galilee sits several hundred feet below the Mediterranean, below sea level. And the way the, the mountains and everything come down and the river at the north, apparently strong winds can come up out of nowhere. And in Oklahoma, I think we get that. I mean, you know, they, you look at your iPhone and you go, oh, it's going to be 68 tomorrow. And then you, you didn't realize there would be 60-mile-per-hour gusts. And you're like, God, I forgot that we get wind and then our allergies. Well, imagine you're on the boat and this wind is coming at you and you can't get anywhere. The passage tells us that they, they were able to get about three or four miles. So they're three or four miles from where they left. They're probably about three or four miles from the shore where they're trying to get to, and they're about that distance from any, any of the coasts. They're in the middle of a lake. And I just, I, I don't know if they're rowing or if they have sails or how this is all set up, but it sounds horrible. But what makes it particularly difficult is they're in a bind. What's the bind? Most people on a lake with wind would go, you know what, it's not going to work out today. Let's just kind of head back to where we started, or maybe we go down there. We know somebody at that town We'll take a break, 24 hours, we'll get back in the boat, we'll start over, right? Because they don't have anywhere they're going. Most people can just say, this is just not going to happen. But if you're a disciple and you know where you're going, and and Jesus is going to, we aren't told how they knew and what he told them, but they knew we need to get to Capernaum. Jesus is going to be there. And even if we're there ahead of him, there's a reason. We're trying to get there to make preparations. We're trying to, we're serving him. We're We're on a mission. And so they're in this bind and they're trying to get to the other side. So there's a conflict. Now, what's your conflict? Um, we watched a movie. I won't say the name of it. Maybe I should. I can't even remember the name, to be honest. Netflix movie. It's a Netflix. I don't even want to say the name. It's horrible. Don't even watch it. But I will tell you, Ben Affleck is in it. And it's really bad. And, and after the movie was over, Coleman says, uh, you know what made that movie awful? There was no antagonist. You know, remember English class? Like... Who's the antagonist? Well, is it, and remember like we started discussing like man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself. They did like all of those. 
Like the movie maker decided to be like postmodern, I think, and said, we're just going to make this about everything and nothing at the same time. Um, and, and I think they honestly, as I've reflected, I think they were trying it. And I think partly because that is real life. Like in real life, you're doing all three. But in movies, you need to choose one. So if you're writing a movie, one conflict, okay? One resolution. The rest of the stuff's just there. If you're living life, there are three things. There's the devil, there's the world, and there's your flesh. It's all right there. And then in, and in, you think about just, I've been, pro, I know it sounds crazy, I've been processing the devil. Do you ever think about the devil? Don't think too much about the devil. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, wrote Screwtape Letters, a very interesting exploration of an uncle, Uncle Screwtape and his, his demon nephew. That's a compliment for them. Uh, Wormwood, and they're debating and writing, not debating, they're interacting on how to take out the client or the patient, the person they're after. And it's just a smidgen of what's probably even true. Like, you know, like I'm 43. I've been studying some counseling things. I'm learning about people, right? You're 40, if you're older than me, you know more than me. Like, the older you get, imagine being like thousands of years old. How much you know about people? Like, Devil, the devil probably has demons who can talk about micro-expressions, and they're reading you. Can, they, can the demons read our brain? I don't know. Is this getting weird? Maybe. But here's the point. There is an enemy who's out to get you who has far more knowledge of human nature than you ever will until glory. And they have you in their sights. If you're a disciple, are you aware of that? Secondly, the world. Okay, nature, Romans 8, right? The world groans. It's, it's trying to get these people off of it that are fallen, in a sense. Uh, but the people, the, the systems of the world, like even the systems that we think are so amazing, like capitalism, and hopefully most of us don't think it's socialism, but whatever your systems, most of us would have to agree there's evil even in these systems. And the world is really set up against you. And then the flesh, right? Like, um, I, I was reading the letters of John Newton. Uh, I'm starting to read the letters of John Newton. And he brings up the word temptation. And I'm reminded, oh, yeah, like, you're tempted. You know, of course we're tempted. But so often we just blow right past temptation. We feel so bad. And yet the reality is you have a flesh who's conspiring with the devil and with the world to bring you down. And what I'm trying to say is this. I don't want to overplay it, but this passage is saying when you're a disciple and you're on a mission for Jesus, there is wind. There is turbulence. It is really difficult. We uh, rented a pontoon boat a few years ago. I've told this story at Grand Lake. Um, so I'm not a lake person. And I thought, I want to be a great dad. And there's Emily found that. So we got a, a pontoon boat. We thought, this is the safest little boat, right? You know what a pontoon is? And we, we puddled out of the little place and over by Shangri-La and we're kind of hanging out and, and, hey, let's go away over there and whatever. And Grand Lake, by the way, is like huge. And we got a little farther. I don't even know if we got farther than we meant to. It started getting a little choppy. And off in the distance, you could see dark clouds. But they were pretty far away. But the most stunning thing was all the boats disappeared. Like, all the boats. There was that last speedboat that was flying. Like, where's that guy going? And the next thing I knew is we were on these waves that, I mean, we were scared. Like, it was scary. And not only was it scary, 
There was like no way to go. Like we'd go back, we'd hit a wave, I'd gun it, and then as we're hitting the next wave, I'd break, and we finally hit this one wave that was so hard, boom, like gallons of water came in. And like Bonnie, I think will still be, she'll be talking to a counselor as an adult about that event and why she does not go near the water. I think that's a picture of life. Um, I'm not saying it's every day. The turbulence could be allergies. I'm not trying to be funny. Like, it can be something that doesn't, whatever it is, I'm just asking you, are you aware and calling it that? Are you aware of saying, aha, I see my temptation to avoid this situation and veer for ease when Jesus has called me to go toward it? What is the turbulence you're avoiding? The relationships, the struggles, the challenges? Can we confess that we all want an easy life? Can we name that together and realize that often, and I would say as a disciple, probably most of the time we're moving in toward rough waters and that's not the problem. That's actually the place where Jesus will show up. Something Emily will say a lot is Aslan's on the move, right? And I think one of the signs that Aslan is on the move, Jesus, is turbulence. Can we, as disciples, make that adjustment? When problems come, instead of going, okay, how do I get out of this? Go to point three and ask, how is Jesus going to show up? How will Jesus come to me in this turbulence? That's point three. In the most beautiful part of the story, really. Um, These disciples are on this boat, and they're all alone. And I want to highlight that. I mean, so let me just read the passage so we're caught up. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Jesus walked on water. It's amazing how many scholars have tried over the years to explain that away. Jesus is walking not just on water, like a pool, like glass. It's wavy, scary water in the middle of a lake. Um, What's astounding is these disciples are not yet afraid until they see Jesus. That's why I'm distinguishing this miracle from the storm. When the storm happens and the other miracle, they're terrified and they're mad that Jesus is asleep. In this situation, they're probably more bothered by the fact that they're not making any headway. And certainly there's exhaustion and anguish and other feelings, but they're not afraid until Jesus shows up. It says that when they saw Jesus, they were frightened. And, and Matthew and Mark, one of the two, uh, mentioned that they actually thought they saw a ghost. So there's this terror in them. I was processing where the terror might have come from, and it's obvious they thought they were alone. When we were on the boat in the water, I've already referred to this, like the, part of the terror was we were, it would have been great if there had been four more boats you could have waved at. Like, this is crazy. There was nobody. We didn't have a radio. I didn't know who to call. Like, you're by, yes, there's my group, but other than that, we felt utterly alone. A few Sundays ago, I walked out of my office into the, to the library where Marsha Carnes is dutifully doing her beautiful work. And I want you to know she goes to a lot of work for the Sunday school class. And she's in her own zone. I'm like, hey, Marsha. And she's, ah! And she's, I do that all the time with Tom. And we kind of joked about it, and I, we pro, like, there, what is it about when you're all by yourself? 
that someone just says, hi. Like, I didn't, ah. Do you ever do that? Like I'm, during the day, I'm by myself in the building. If someone pops in, I, sometimes Susie's cleaning the building. I'm like popping in. I'm like, I don't, how do I give her a, I'm over here. Like, you know, how do I not scare the person who thinks they're by themselves? Jesus was not expected. That's what made this so scary. Like there was not one thought in their mind. Like we're in trouble. We're on water. Maybe Jesus will walk to us. Wouldn't that be really cool? Not a thought. Right? What makes it frightening is that Jesus does something that's humanly impossible, but more importantly is glorious. He walks right up to them, right to where they are. When you're in trouble, do you expect Jesus to show up? I, I don't. Often I think, how am I going to get to shore? How am I going to get back on course? I'm a disciple. I'm trying to get to Jesus. How do I get there? I've hit a roadblock. And I think Jesus is showing, this is where you find me. And he comes to them. And let us not miss the construct there. Um, it is I. Do not be afraid. Ego, me, the Greek, for I am. Some people would say, well, that's, you're overreaching to call this him proclaiming that he's deity. But most scholars, especially historically, would say absolutely. What John is showing us is that Jesus is taking his disciples in a private moment and he's showing them, I'm Yahweh, like I'm God. Isn't that how the book of John begins, right? If you were to take the beginning prologue of John, the rest of it's sort of a commentary. God, Jesus is God, he's from the beginning, he makes all things, he came to the darkness, his own reject him, but he's the light and he shines that light into darkness and he seeks and saves his people. And what he's doing to his disciples is he's revealing to them, I am. And Moses is the first one to hear those words in the desert by the burning bush. And this picture of the bread of life really follows the Exodus account. And what Jesus is saying is, I am that God. I am the pursuer. I am the one who's coming to your rescue. Is that your hope? Is that your view of Jesus? Is that what you cling to when you're in trouble? I was uh, thinking about the song we sang. I didn't write all the lyrics down, so it's risky, but just the song of John Newton, which comes from his letters. But um, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And that thought that we want to be disciples, we want to grow. We ask the Lord to give us holiness. We ask him to give us righteousness. But he brings these challenges. He brings the waves. He brings the wind. And the question I would ask as we move to our last point is, are we after the growth or are we after Jesus? Because when Jesus shows up for these disciples, they're not thinking about Capernaum. What are they doing? And let's talk about that last point, that Jesus gets in the boat. And I want to talk about this process of him getting in the boat. Um, he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Some have said that this is a second miracle within the, tomb, within the walking on water. Some have said that this immediacy of them being at the shore is another miracle, possibly. If you take the, I mean, that's fine. I'm fine with that interpretation. When you, when you kind of compare it to Matthew and Mark, I would also wonder if possibly what John is doing is if he's showing us that when Jesus gets in the boat and his disciples are worshiping Jesus 
and the sea is calm, which is a second miracle, not only did he walk on the water, but that the sea calmed, if the process of getting to shore was secondary to the worship of Jesus and sort of, in a way, combined with that. I think so often in sanctification, that is in our growth of holiness, we're so thinking about like the results that we forget that Jesus is the one that gets us there. And I would doubt that when you get to the shore, they were debating with, amongst themselves, who was it that actually guided the boat? That was me. You know, I'm the one that, no one was talking about the process once Jesus got on the boat. No one was trying to brag about, hey, did you notice how I was rowing? I mean, it was really cool how Jesus got on the boat, but did you see me rowing while you guys were praying? Like, the point is, we got there, and Jesus is what matters. And we were worshiping him. Uh, and the other two accounts, I just want you to see, um, the result is, in, in Mark, they got into the boat, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. That's an interesting uh, addition Mark gives us. So in other words, what Mark is saying is, in a way, these disciples had a lot in common with the people back that had been fed and that they didn't understand the power of the loaves. Nevertheless, they obeyed Jesus. They got in the boat. And more importantly, when he came to them, they were astounded and astonished and welcomed him in the boat and they praised him. And that's what took them to shore. There's an illustration I've used a lot I want to use here to just draw us where I'm trying to go. And that is C.S. Lewis's quote at the end of Mere Christianity about holiness. When he says, to become holy, it doesn't happen while you're looking at it. And I think so often our construct of becoming holy is I'm going to look at the goal, I'm going to look at the plan, I'm going to look at the, like, I'm not going to lie, I'm going to, re and, and what, what I think Jesus is showing us is it happens while you're worshiping him. And so what Lewis says is, he gives these two examples. Um, one is making a good first impression, which I think we can all understand. When you're meeting somebody and you're getting to know them, have you ever had someone go out of their way to make a good first impression to you and it wasn't working? Or have you ever done that? Like the people that repeat names over and over and over? You know, like, hey, Jerry, I'm, it's good to meet Jerry. Jerry, it's great. Okay, I'm Jerry. I get it. You're trying to memorize my name. I think Lewis is saying the people that, you, that we want to be when we're meeting somebody is I just want to get to know you. I just want to know you well. Right? That's, I'm not trying to make a good first impression. I'm just trying to know you. And oh, by the way, guess what happens? It's a good impression. Someone doesn't say, hey, did you make a good first impression? No, but I became friends with Jerry. You know, Like, I don't know how he thinks of me, but I like the person and we're friends. Okay, does that make sense? Second one, art. This one really hits me because Emily and I are art majors. And uh, he says artists, the ones that are, I'm using painting now, so subset of art, painting. The artists that try to be original rarely are. You always have these people in the art school at OU who you could just tell or try, I won't even tell you the crazy paintings that we would see. And, you know, like you could just tell the people like, I'm trying to make the craziest painting, shock value, et cetera, so that I'll be original. Those people are not artists right now, I promise you. What, what Lewis says is the artist that's trying to tell the truth in their work, that nine times out of ten become original without even knowing it. And I was thinking about, I think I've said this before, but Monet, his painting of the haystack. Have you seen the series on haystacks? 
Like had he told somebody, I'm contemplating painting like 180 haystacks. Same one. Sometimes I'll have two. Sometimes it'll be morning. Sometimes it'll be evening. Sometimes I'll be kind of close. Sometimes I'll be kind of far. The people would have said, boo, boring. It's Monet. Like he's trying to show you and I what he sees with his impressionistic style and it's glorious, right? He wasn't trying to be original. He was trying to show you haystacks. So when we look at Jesus and we worship Jesus in, this is the key, in the turbulence, uh, that's the critical component. We're not ignoring the problems of our life and then going to Jesus. We're, we're, we're longing to see him in our struggles. Does that make sense, the difference? What's the best biblical example of that? Well, it's the part that Matthew adds to the story that Mark and John do not add. And that's Peter. When Peter sees Jesus coming to him, he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, and comes to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Now think about that. Not only is Jesus on water, on waves, he's got to grab and hold a heavy person while staying on top of the water. And he does save Peter and says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Do you hear that? Peter, in his most amazing moment, fails. I love it because Mark is actually co-written by Peter. Peter doesn't even want that story in Mark. He's not, he's, he's, and John himself doesn't tell that portion. Not because it's a problem, maybe because they're trying to avoid any sense of like bragging, I don't know. But I think that's very encouraging for me when I'm in trouble to think if I look at Jesus in the storm, if I'm worshiping Jesus, who he is, in the turbulence, I'm rescued. Does that make sense? Um, I just want to conclude with an illustration to help maybe with this. And I've used this a lot. You need to hear it a lot. We need to hear it about once a year and then sing the song. But uh, Horatio Spafford, a lawyer in Chicago, lost one son during the Great Fire in the 1870s. Uh, it also ruined his business so they decided and made some business plans to go to Israel and start up a new business with their, I think, three daughters and wife. But he had to send them ahead of himself on, on a ship while he stayed back to do some details. That ship sinks, killing his daughters. In fact, the, the, the uh, message sent back to him is famous, the telegram, simply by his wife, simply these words, saved alone. And so he gets on a boat to go meet with his grieving wife and pick up life. And I believe it was the captain who showed him roughly where that collision had happened on the ocean. And that is where he began the process of pinning the famous hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. 
And he goes through, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he shed his own blood for my soul. For my sin, and this is amazing, for my sin, pause, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, pause, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Is that your truth? Is that your hope? Let us bring the trials as we are on this path of discipleship to Jesus' feet, knowing that he is with us and we worship him and he will get us to the haven safely. Let us pray. We praise you, Jesus. Lord, you are our Lord during the storm of life. Teach us to keep pursuing you, but mostly teach us to rest in what you've done for us as we pursue you. Teach us to cherish the cross and the resurrection and the new life. Teach us to gaze at you in this life. Let that be our guiding force for your glory. Amen.